Jim Marty here, and um, we are here to talk about some of the social impacts of legalized cannabis. I'm here with Larry Miskin. Hey, Jim. How are you? Very good. Wonderful. Always looking forward to it. Yep, me too. So we're going to talk for a little bit here, about a half an hour, on the subject of the social impact of legalized marijuana when it comes to highway safety, uh, fatalities, uh, driving while intoxicated, and roadside sobriety tests. So those topics should take us through the next half hour. And that's the subject I've been studying because I'm from Colorado. As many of you know, my company is Bridge West. We're a CPA firm devoted to the cannabis industry. And hard to believe, but it's been 10 years since I started signing tax returns for cannabis clients. (laughs) And of course, there's always a lot of debate about, you know, is legalized marijuana a good thing? Or is it, you know, does it add to traffic fatalities? Certainly the other side, I call them the, the prohibitionists. And, you know, there's a place we can have common ground with people on the other side, but they like to bring up traffic safety as one of the downsides of legalized cannabis. But I've been studying that for some time in Colorado. And the surprising thing is that way back in 2002, when we had no legal cannabis in Colorado, there was almost a thousand, maybe even 1,200 fatalities a year. And by 2014, that had that's when we got full adult use. That number had dropped to about 600 traffic fatalities a year, and it's been consistently there ever since. I think we hit a low of 550 fatalities, and then uh, the last two years it's been right around 600 with a small. Uh, dip in 2018. But the question I ponder is why are we half of what we were back in 2002? And the only logical answer I can come up with, I guess a couple, is um, that we have safer cars and airbags and seatbelts are making cars safer. So even though there's accidents, uh, they're not fatal accidents. Larry, did you have anything you wanted to comment on that? Yeah, sure. What you've done here, Jim, is you've really touched not just on a particular topic, but, you know, what, what ultimately can be a wide series of topics that we have to really consider uh, what is the impact on society and the individual, both with medical cannabis and with, you know, the onset of adult use, certainly in Colorado and a lot of Western states and now on the minds of everyone in Illinois and uh, parts east of the Mississippi as that expands. And the first thing, one of the very first things that, that people on both sides of this equation want to talk about is public safety issues and there's really no public safety issue i don't think that galvanizes attention of the public like duis because a dui is something where any one of us regardless of how well we may be following and observing the rules of the road uh, if somebody out there is intoxicated to the point where he or she cannot uh, control their actions uh, we that puts us very much at risk uh, and every other driver on the road uh, and i think that it's good to have this conversation, but I think it's really necessary to start, you know, certainly from my perspective, and I'll answer your question in one minute, with the idea that nobody who's part of the cannabis industry advocates intoxicated driving. I don't know of anyone who says, yeah, go get stoned and go get behind the wheel of your car, go for it. Everyone in, in any industry where the products can result, you know, in, in intoxication and a lessening of motor skills uh, has to be behind the notion that that's not what we support. We support safe use, we support uh, proper use, and certainly discourage any type of use that would put you or anyone else uh, at risk or in danger. Having said all of that, 
we are a society uh, that does, in fact, engage in intoxicants, especially when we have Saturday night out or a football game to go to or all of those things that society has kind of told us, hey, this is a good time to sit down and have a drink. Uh, but instead of having a drink now, perhaps people are substituting that with a drink. And to get to your question, Jim, on, on, a, on a double level, number one, I think that the uh, decrease uh, in, in traffic uh, fatalities uh, can absolutely be attributed to the fact uh, that if people are now smoking marijuana and instead of drinking and then going home and driving, most of the studies do demonstrate uh, that people who have are intoxicated because of marijuana are safer drivers than people who are intoxicated due to alcohol. They're not angry. They're not nearly as aggressive. Uh, they're not as likely to cut somebody off in traffic or flip somebody off who cuts them off. Uh, you know, leading to escalating situations where people drive faster and tend to lose control. And I think that that's a really, really important aspect of what's going on. You know, one takeaway that cannot be denied is there has not been a spike in traffic fatalities in Washington, Oregon, and Colorado, where we've had, at least since 2014, for Colorado and Washington, uh, legal adult use. So you can debate whether, you know, hey, there may be more of these people in accidents have cannabis in their system, which we're going to talk about next. But you can't deny the fact that traffic accidents have not spiked in any way, and they're very flatlined, and in some cases improving. So the takeaway is marijuana does not seem to add to traffic fatalities, legal marijuana, for whatever variety of reasons. I, I think the cops are going to lose money pretty soon on DUIs in general with Uber and Lyft. There's absolutely no reason to get a, a DUI in this day and age if you have a cell phone and who doesn't have a cell phone? Well, you're, you're, you're right about that, too. And, 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 and again, I, I stress the importance of if you are intoxicated from any substance and you have an option that does not require you to drive yourself, you should always take that option, whether it's somebody else driving your car, taking an Uber, taking the train. Whatever you have to do, I think, is certainly appropriate. But you touched upon something a few minutes ago that really is going to get you know, to the crux of this issue, and that is enforceability. And as a lawyer, we're always very, very concerned about the rights of individuals, both uh, the individual who might be stopped by the police and the individuals who might be harmed if that person isn't stopped by the police. Maybe. Let me ask you a question, Larry. And Larry's a uh, very prominent uh, attorney, cannabis attorney with Hoban Law. Thank you. Um, I have a lot of respect for his opinions. Is there a accurate roadside sobriety test for cannabis? I've heard both sides of that issue, that some people say yes, some people say no. I do know that in Colorado, one of the counter-arguments is that more people in fender benders are testing positive for cannabis. And, uh, well, certainly, if you're in a fender bender, there's more likelihood you are going to be tested for cannabis and you're in a legal, if you're in a legal state like Colorado. But, Larry, I want to turn it back to you. And, you know, is there an accurate way to test impairment for cannabis? In asking the question, Jim, you really touched on part of the answer, and it's the disturbing part of the answer. It's kind of the lazy man's part of the answer, I like to say. And that is just, you know, let's just do a quick test. Let's do a blood draw. Let's see if we can measure measurable amount of THC in this person's bloodstream, if we can find it. Then we're going to slam them with DUI, whether or not they're intoxicated. So in other words, what they're more concerned about is presence rather than impairment. So what we need is not just something that can detect the presence of marijuana because it's going to be there for 28 days no matter what you do. 
but the real question is, do we have a way to test impairment? Uh, interestingly enough, a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago now, the Arizona Supreme Court addressed that very issue. And in the particular case that was before them, an individual had been pulled over for speeding and reckless driving. Uh, when he was pulled over uh, and during his questioning, he acknowledged and admitted uh, that the day before, or maybe two days before, but relatively close in time, he had smoked a joint, maybe two joints with some of his friends. So he was immediately booked not just for speeding, uh, but for DUI, and he was booked under a Colorado, excuse me, an Arizona statute that makes it illegal for anyone with an illegal substance in their body to operate a motor vehicle. Uh, so, that, and that seems to suggest that, you know, regardless of, uh, uh, what your levels are. If you have it in your body, that's not okay. The case is he was convicted at the trial court. He lost on his first round of appeals, but he got the Arizona Supreme Court to listen to his scientific argument. And it really makes a lot of sense. The scientific argument was that the metabolites for marijuana in our, for THC in our bloodstream start out in a hydroxy state. And when they're in a hydroxy state, they are psychoactive and they cause the psychoactive effects that leads to intoxication from having used marijuana. However, science also shows us that within four to five hours after you stop smoking marijuana or ingesting it, however you're doing it, that the body begins to break it down and these metabolites metabolize and they go from the hydroxy state to the carboxy state. When they're in the carboxy state, they are not psychoactive and they are no longer producing any kind of uh, intoxicant effect on the individual. And it just so happened in this case that based on the blood results, they were able to determine that at the time of the testing, the uh, metabolites were in the carboxy state. So the Arizona Supreme Court said if they're in the carboxy state, clearly this man was not impaired just because it was present in his system. Therefore, he was not uh, uh, a DUI. And furthermore, once the metabolites are in the carboxy state and they're not producing a psychoactive effect, they're not even an illegal substance anymore. So he can't even be ticketed for uh, operating a vehicle with an illegal substance in his body. Now, the ramifications of this type of testing are profound for driving, for employment, for anything, but we're focusing on driving. The real question is, how do you do it in a roadside setting? And to date, that's a process that they're still working on. Right. Yes. Now, in Colorado, and they'll take you to a hospital for a blood test, mm -hmm. amount of nanograms of active THC in your body, which supposedly will only detect that it's psychoactive if you smoked in the last three hours. No. If you smoked in the last day or so, it doesn't trigger that same test. Yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I, you know, again, in the practice of law, whenever we talk about these kind of tests, what it really boils down to is, do they have a level of accuracy that will allow a court to consider them as evidence? So, you know, we always hear the story about the person who goes in for the defense on a DU on, excuse me, on a speeding ticket and says, yo, the radar gun is defective. It doesn't operate properly. And, and there are many judges out there who will, in fact, require the police to put on evidence to demonstrate that the gun was working properly on the designated day. And, and all of this other stuff as, as we try to come up with a way to do this, they're going to have to come up with something. I, I, I'm familiar with what you're talking about, Jim. I don't think that anybody out there agrees yet that we have a uniform way uh, to be able to determine conclusively at the car, standing by the car on the roadway, 
uh, much, you know, very much unlike a breathalyzer test, which gives an immediate result that's universally accepted as being accurate. This is a real problem, and this is going to be part of the challenge uh, as we go forward. But, you know, it, it, what's interesting to me about it is that people are objecting to the fact that we don't have the product in place already, whereas I would turn that on its head and say, what was ever the incentive for industry to develop these types of tools or instruments if the underlying product wasn't permitted anyway? Now that we have the uh, rules and laws that say that, that adults can use marijuana, I think that provides quite an incentive for a number of companies. And I wouldn't be surprised within a year or two to see the market all of a sudden flooded with products uh, that purport to be able to measure uh, THC levels and uh, the, the level of active uh, ingredients in your uh, bloodstream at that particular time. Right. And I think there's pretty widespread agreement that at this time, there really isn't an accurate roadside test. And they, they will take you to the hospital for a blood test, which brings me to my next point I wanted to, to make. And that is, um, if you're pulled over and you're stopped by the police, do you consent to the test or do you turn it down? Now, in Colorado, if you turn down a roadside sobriety test, you automatically lose your license for either three months or a year. I forget the exact amount, but you definitely lose your license um, on the spot, basically, if you turn down a roadside sobriety test. I don't know how that works in Illinois. In Illinois, in theory, it works the same way, but the, the advice that attorneys uh, will almost always give their clients is, and I quote the famous Matt Abel from Detroit, Michigan, when I say this to make sure he gets proper credit, just say no. That's all you say to the police officers. I've instructed my sons and their friends. A police officer comes and says, you know, your car smells like you've been smoking. Let me search your car. No. Let me give you a breathalyzer test. No. And the idea is, once you've given consent to search the car, you no longer have available to you the defense of that the search was no good because the stop was improper in the first place. Similarly, with a DUI test, if you don't blow into the DUI machine, they can make whatever assumptions they want to make and try to pin you for whatever they want to pin you. But the truth is, they then do not have evidence of the fact that you were driving while intoxicated. Now, this is by no means intended to serve as a primer for people on how to avoid these types of problems, but by the same token, drivers should always know their rights. And there's no uh, rule that compels you to allow your car to be searched and uh, notwithstanding laws that on their face purport to require you uh, to provide you know, evidence from your own body, uh, there's a big body of law and uh, any one of a number of people who will say, uh, we're not here to make the police officer's jobs easier. And that doesn't mean that they're our enemy. But it does mean that simply because a police officer for some reason decides to pull this car over, that they have a right to start sticking their nose in there, uh, demanding you show them everything you have in there, uh, and demanding that you know you start breathing into a tube or giving them some blood. In other words, they have to have an objective, observable basis. Uh, we call it, you know, in the law, probable cause as to why they have stopped you in the first place. And if right. you can't enunciate that... Even if you do lose your license on the spot, that doesn't preclude you from fighting to get it back when you get to court. Correct. Absolutely correct. Because the burden of proof will always remain on the police officer to prove that uh, you, know, you were, in fact, intoxicated at that time. And without a breathalyzer, that becomes a very, very difficult thing to prove. Now, again, having said that, I am all in favor of an accurate device that can measure... Uh, if somebody's overly intoxicated on marijuana, because like we said before, uh, I don't want to be on a road with somebody who's so stoned they can't see out the window any more than I want to be on the road with somebody who's so drunk 
you know, that they can't say their name properly. Either one is a risk. I'd like to move on to a more pleasant subject, but this is really good information, something all of us should know in dealing with this world that we live in. You know, I would, the takeaway is uh, you got Uber, you got Lyft, you got designated drivers. If you're going to go out for the night, try not to bring a car. So many of my millennial friends don't even have cars anymore. How about you up there in Chicago? Do you see that trend also of people not having cars? I think that's right, and that's smart. And, and, and really, you're, you're absolutely right, Jim. What a big part of this is is just changing our, our own personal habits. And for years, everybody gets in a car and goes to where they want to go. And the idea was if I try to catch a taxi afterwards, it's going to be impossible and it's going to be expensive and I won't have enough cash on me. But you're right, with Uber and Lyft you know, being what they are, Especially as you know, you're going to be at that you know betting company show at uh, in Boulder, Colorado. The last thing you want to do is come stumbling out of that stadium and figure out how you're going to drive from there back to your house up in the lovely hills there, and not have to worry about somebody pulling you over because they saw you pull out of the parking lot. So they figure you're a pretty good bet to be high. Yes, and that's the more pleasant subject I want to turn to as we come to the end of this episode. Larry and I are very much looking forward to the Dead and Company tour. I was very fortunate that I was able to see the Grateful Dead by my count in my Dead Base book, highlighting the shows I was at. I got to see the Grateful Dead with Jerry Garcia about 45 times. Actually, it was 45 times before he passed. And uh, seen many, many shows since then. I'm not one of these purists who say, well, you know, Jerry's gone. I'm not going to go to any more shows. I just look at them and I say, you're missing so much great music. This music wasn't meant to end at the end of a human life. So anyway, we're very much looking forward to the Dead and Company tour. We're going to get two shows July 5th and 6th at Folsom Field, which last year they sold out the Saturday night show for the first time in the, the Dead and Company's runs at pretty much 60,000 people. And uh, Larry, they're going to do Wrigley Field in Chicago again? They are. And, you know, let me just say, cause you, you, you raise an excellent point, and, and I'm Exhibit A. I reached the pier right, right when Dead and Company was forming. And we had already gone through Further and The Dead before that and, and all the other iterations that they kind of put together. And they threw together Dead and Company. And, and I have to say, I, I was never a huge John Mayer fan, probably for no other reason than I just didn't listen to a whole lot of his music and never really had a chance to fully appreciate him. And the first time Dead and Company came through town, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of busy. I don't think I'm going to go this time. And one of my friends said exactly what you just said was that, you know, it's not just about the music because Lord knows I, I saw the dead with Jerry Garcia 110 times. And I can assure you uh, that there were very many of those shows where Garcia was not, uh, let's just say, at his best game. But sometimes that just didn't matter because being at the show and being with everyone and being part of the whole scene was so much fun. And so uh, two years ago, I saw them at Wrigley Field. Last year, I was out at Folsom Field. And I'm fully pulled back in now with the idea that it's just great to be there. It's great to be part of the scene, see old friends. And even better, Jim, and I'm sure you can relate to this, this, right? There's always faces. I still see faces that I've seen for 25, 30, 40 years at shows. I couldn't tell you the person's name, but I can tell you where they were sitting the night that they broke out of St. Stephen in Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah. We all have our great memories. Yeah, and this tour... They're not going to do uh, Fenway this year. They're moving it to Gillette Stadium. So I think that's closer to 80,000 people. Well, that, that's amazing. So Dead & Company has really built a nice following in the three or four years. Larry and I got together in Chicago in 19, or no, 2005. No, 2015, sorry. 2015 for the 50th anniversary shows at Soldier's Field. Yep, 2015. 
So um, anyway, um, we've had lots of great Grateful Dead experiences that we'll share. We're also both big fish fans, which not every Grateful Dead makes the full transition over to fish. There's a little bit of a debate, a long-running debate on, you know, fish versus Grateful Dead as far as, you know, who's playing better, which jams are better. Um, so we'll have that discussion another time. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, just a few weeks until uh, Dead & Co. and Fish kick off their summer tour. So we'll talk more about that later. It's nice to be our age and still be able to look out there and say, wow, i got to get my summer planning. What's the Fish tour? What's the Dead tour? 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, I never would have thought that, you know, in my mid to late 50s, I would still be planning my summer around summer tour. Yes, and it's also nice going with your grown children and your teenage children oh, yeah. and introducing them to the scene and teaching them what this show is all about, which is social responsibility, but still having a lot of fun with your friends. Right. Anyway, I always tell my sons, uh, have a good time, but be responsible. Wow. And so that's my message for the audience today. Have a good time, but be responsible. Yep, and that, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that... Uh, uh, you know, my, my joke with my kids is that their grandfather, my father, I never took me to a single concert of any kind when I was a kid. And the fact that I can take my kids to still see the dead and uh, uh, still see fish and, and any of these bands that come through, uh, uh, it's just, it's a wonderful, it, it becomes a generational thing. And, you know, it, it gives me a little bit of hope that we weren't all so crazy, you know, when we were out running around trying to catch as many dead shows as we did. Okay, so, hey, that's over and out for this segment of cannabis talk with jim and larry and we'll talk to you again soon and next subject will be we have so many subjects to discuss but um i think um you know the legal states and what they're doing to prevent products crossing state lines and a diversion that's the word i was looking for well, you know what it is, i think jim? we'll talk some about diversion on the next show it's the realities of what happens when all of a sudden you know you have a legal product and you know things things that we never had to really think about or worry about because the whole underlying subject matter was illegal to begin with but once it comes you know above that line you're absolutely right there's a number of other factors that come into play that people have to be aware of yes i think we have many many things to talk about we haven't even touched on the whole other side of cannabis which is hemp and hemp products right and what's going to happen with the 2019 hemp crop I... now that uh the 2018 farm bill is in place I would say you're right. There's a ton of those topics, and, you know, we haven't even touched uh, the surface, you know, in discussing the merits and the pros and cons of Fish's uh, annual Halloween musical costume. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> yes. And the great fun we have at Dick's every Labor Day weekend with three shows. No doubt. It's a good one. Well, I'm excited. It gives me something okay. to look forward to. Over and out. Bye, guys. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.